guys, welcome to Watchers TV and this time it's not Mark, it's me. My name is Lisa and we have a very special guest today with us. It's uh, Darren Schnipper, Senior Vice President, Vice President and chairman. chairman, which is more about the Chairman of uh, Watches Division International of Sotheby's. And we're going to talk uh, about her career path and uh, how she ended up in, uh, at Sotheby's. It was quite simple, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, I was a student and um, I was doing an internship with a watch dealer who was at the time writing a book about King Farouk of Egypt and he needed someone to do some of the research and I was a journalism student at the time. Uh, so I worked for him for a couple of summers and uh, he actually helped start the watch department in New York at Sotheby's. He worked very closely, his name was Abe Sikofsky, and he worked very closely with Kevin Tierney, who was also the silver expert, the objects of virtue expert, and is still at Sotheby's, I might add. Um, and when I had to go to Sotheby's to do some research for the book, because Sotheby's, in fact, um, are, were the organizers of the sale of Farouk's um, collections, which was one of the first big 20th century uh, single owner sales that lasted a month in Egypt. Uh, he had sent me to Sotheby's to research if the watches that were in the, that sale, because they were quite a wonderful selection, if any had come up again and where they ended up. So that was my first um, entree to Sotheby's, and I thought, wow, this is kind of interesting. Um, and I was all set to be journalist. <laughs> and from then on, I thought, oh, I think this is kind of more interesting, and then I can work in New York and not have to end up in God knows where in America. Um, and really, the rest is kind of history. So I started in the watch, depart watch department, which was part of the silver department at that time, uh, in 1980, after I graduated from university. So you already, uh, have you already had this passion for watches? And it was uh, yeah. like, this guy you were... Discussing. When I started working for him, that's I had no idea what you know, what it was all about, really. And then because of King Farouk's amazing collection, which included um, wonderful enamels, automata, all manner of important watches, uh, you know, I, I started to get to know about it. I was actually, um, the next year, I was still in school, but I did an internship at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London in their metalworks department and working with the watches there. And yeah, I mean, I just, that was it. Did you already have your own collection, started your own collection? Or you had no. your first watches that you, you bought? Here? Well, I did, was very enamored with this little uh, copy of a, a miniature copy of a French cartel clock, or maybe it was a Swiss cartel clock for that matter, when I was about eight or nine, and I remember I got that as a birthday present, and I insisted I had to have it. So I think it really was somewhere in the deep back part of my DNA. It is interesting that you started at Sotheby's uh, exactly at the beginning of all these auctions for wristwatches. Yes. And uh, how was it for you? Oh, well, um, coming from 
a world of pocket watches, which is what I basically studied. Um, and, you know, that was, that was the market. I said to my then boss, Kevin Tierney, what do, he was going off on holiday uh, that summer. And I said, what do I do if somebody comes in with a wristwatch? I mean, I assumed, I assumed, I said, I say, we're not selling them. He goes, no, 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 something's definitely happening with that. And we started selling wristwatches. Can you tell us your experience about your first uh, auction of wristwatches? Uh, well, probably we started amassing them for that first sale, which was in October. Um, we didn't really know what we were doing. We weren't really sure what people were collecting. I mean, obviously, at that time, it was really, Switzerland was coming off of the crisis, the quartz crisis. Um, and the idea was that um, the Swiss manufacturers, watchmakers, were going to dismantle any equipment that had to do with making manual watches. And they would, or automatic watches for that matter, and they were going to devote themselves to quartz. Uh, that, in fact, indeed spawned collecting of wristwatches because it, it was the, it was thought to be the close of a horological chapter. And once you close a, a chapter on a collect, uh, on a category, it, you know, people start collecting it. Um, so it was really interesting being there at the beginning. Um, I remember one of my first sales, I think we had five paddock chronographs from the 30s and 40s, and I thought, oh my God, are we going to be able to sell these? And we did. And when I look back at those catalogs, it's really incredible what we would get. 24.99s, 15.18s, you know, all the great stuff. Just finding back to the nowadays. Uh, yeah. Can you compare how was it before and uh, how it evolved sexually? Well, now what's interesting is that um, I, I mean, a lot of us believe, and I'm sure there would be an argument, but it, uh, due to the collecting interest in wristwatches of vintage, we think it, it definitely energized the Swiss, uh, the new watch industry. And around 1990, you started, even a little earlier, not much, you started seeing ads for new watches in the newspapers, you know, by watch companies. And that was astonishing. Uh, you didn't see that. Now, you know, watches for ads are all over the place. But the wonderful thing is that it inspired all of a whole new market of watches, which we are all enjoying today. And you've been a pioneer of this market. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. And I read your biography a little bit, and I know that you have a lot, tons of uh, fantastic stories oh. about the collections, private collections, yes. and uh, how you sold pieces, uh, especially about Andy Warhol. Can you, you share it? Yeah, everybody's quite fascinated with Andy Warhol. Because he had a huge collection, actually, of watches. Yeah. I can't remember exactly how many lots. It's probably like two or three hundred, I think. Um, we were, along with our jewelry department, we were the first ones, once the deal was agreed to, we were the first departments to go into his house, um, which was quite interesting in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. 
Um, and I honestly, I think he was all about the chase. He wasn't about the um, exhibition or enjoying them in a way. So what was interesting was he literally, once he bought it, he never like moved it around. That was more, much truer of other objects. The watches, of course, he, he, they were kept with the jewelry. I think, I can't remember now, but I think it was in a closet. And I think what happened, the other interesting point that I recall was we had the first sale, which was along with a week of sales of his objects, which included uh, furniture, contemporary art, Cookie jars, which at the time were quite went crazy. Um, it's important as well. Yeah, I mean, it was. We sold a Gumby watch for something like twenty six hundred dollars, and it was still at Bloomingdale's on you know on the floor to be sold. You know, there were a whole tranche of them. I couldn't believe it. Um, so he, we we did the first sale, and then. And not very long afterwards, the estate called to say, guess what? We found more watches and more jewelry. So we had a second sale of watches and jewelry the same year in December. I guess that you have uh, more auctions that are more closer to your heart. Uh, which one could you name? I suppose. Uh, which one you like the most? Like which, probably which the private collection you like the most? Time Museum, I would have to say. And that included, that, that was several years of work. Uh, actually, we started the first group in 1986. And um, the owner of the Time Museum, Time Museum was a place in Rockford, Illinois. It was considered the mecca of horology, believe it or not. It's pre-Paddock Philippe Museum. And the owner of the collection um, was a wealthy Midwesterner from Chicago well, from Rockford, Illinois, called Seth Atwood. Um, and one of the prizes in his collection was the Henry Graves watch. In 1986, he had decided that he wanted to deacquisition pieces. And as a result, you know, we were called in to do the job. And what was fantastic about that visit at that time, because we actually cataloged the pieces there, was that George Daniels came out to work with us, um, who was our consultant and up until his death and became a, fr a good friend. And I just always remember him taking his constitution. <laughs> and it was just a wonderful experience. We were there for two weeks. And uh, in the terms of uh, trends for the future, how do you see the market might evolve? Because you have like a huge experience and you, you've seen it uh, growing. You basically, you were the one actually who created the uh, international watch division for Sotheby's. Yes. So uh, apparently you're the person uh, to, to know the trends, where the trends will go. What's interesting about modern watches is that People tend to want to upgrade their collections or update them or modernize them. See, it's not like it was not like that with vintage or wristwatches or with pocket watches. Uh, you, you know, generally you had a finite, even if it was several hundred, you know, several centuries, you had a finite number. And what's so interesting about this market is that, you know, today a Richard Mill 
model, an RM11 can be hot, and tomorrow his next creation. And then people like to upgrade, we find. Let's talk about the prices. So where do you think the, uh, the market is going now? Well, I think, you know, with all of the online bidding for auction houses, we keep attracting more and more people. And as, as they get savvier, they know what they want. And I mean, I think it really, like any market, will always have its ups and downs. But you'll always get new people that are interested. And the older people will want to update, sell, you know, do different things. Have you noticed also the uh, influx of younger generation? Yes. Oh, yeah. Became interested as well. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> the, uh, the age level has certainly dropped to like in their late 20s and early 30s. Do you think it's a good boost for the market? Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, it's fantastic that there's such an interest in watches because, after all, you don't really need a watch. You have your phone. You know, that doesn't matter because people are... That a phone is one thing, and a watch to wear into the boardroom is something else. Uh, we recently had an event in New York called Roly Fest, and we had, I think, 75 collectors. And it was just a remarkable group of people representing all the different age groups, but so many younger generations. Coming back to the uh, question I, I asked you before the interview about your uh, watch. Oh, my favorite watch? Your favorite watch. So maybe we can uh, turn to the, your grail watch. Something, because I think for you it's really hard to pick one piece because you're working, you've seen so many watches, like you have so many. Yeah, it's really hard. Um, I guess the Marie Antoinette would have to be my grail watch because... That is the Non Plus Ultra, I think you say in French. Non Plus Ultra, yeah. Uh, would have to be that. I find that um, watches with history, whether they be recent or whether they be 200 years old, are so intriguing. Because we, you never, so many of the watches we sell, we don't know who owned them. So when you get a good story, it just enlivens or makes the whole piece so much more interesting. So coming back to the stories, could you share with us one of the anecdotes from your past, uh, oh, from uh, past sales, something uh, interesting, uh, something that uh, inspired you? All right. I guess really what was an astonishing moment um, when I was on holiday, and it was only about 10 years ago, in fact, and I got a call from this gentleman who I didn't know, and he was a, a lawyer for, um, his name was Reginald Fullerton, who was the grandson of Henry Graves Jr., who I knew, and had he had just passed away, I think two days earlier, and apparently, in his will, he put to call me at Sotheby's, and he had kept, although he had sold many pieces, including the Henry Graves Jr. over his lifetime, he had a uh, sort of a core collection. And he said, call Darren when I die. And it was actually in his will. And we went up there within a few days. And not only did we get his collection, but his children also 
entrusted us with his archives, which included original letters uh, from Paddock to Henry Graves, you know, also talking about the Henry Graves. And little did I know, and that was in 2012, that in 2014, just two years later, I'd be selling the Henry Graves again. Because, you know, you wonder if you do sell something for the second time of that magnitude, what are you going to say? Well, we had plenty to say and plenty to share. And that was just phenomenal. I mean, first of all, that he entrusted me um, with his collection. And secondly, the fact that we inherited all these documents. Thank you very much for sharing your insights with us. Uh, it was a pleasure to hosting you with Watches TV and uh, see you soon, guys. Bye.